Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. We're just starting year two, and I've got big plans to cover the men's and women's World Cups in the next 12 months. So sign up for an annual subscription. It's very cheap per month if you do it that way. That's grantwall.com. Lots to talk about this weekend, though none of it happening in England. Actually, a little bit that happened earlier in the weeks, but let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you, my friend? Doing all right, sir. How are you? Doing okay. Kind of a weird weekend, but a good weekend. Obviously, the Queen died, uh, RIP, and Premier League games, WSL games on their opening weekend were canceled, postponed in a very busy schedule already, so I'm curious to see how they make all that up. And then, you know, other games happening in Europe. Obviously, uh, we're recording this on Sunday around 5.20 p.m., NFL games going as well. So plenty busy on the sports front, including still the soccer front. And the news of the week, and we haven't talked about it yet, so let's lead with it. Thomas Tuchel being fired as the Chelsea head coach. Todd Bowley the new American running Chelsea, uh, acting a little like classic Roman Abramovich here. The day after Chelsea's loss to Dinamo Zagreb in the Champions League, pulls the plug on Thomas Tuchel, who won the Champions League the season before last, won the World Club Championship last season, but had not gotten off to a good start with three losses already this season for Chelsea. The thing that surprises me, though, is that it seems as though Chelsea right now is not being terribly strategic. And that's the thing that I don't really understand is if you're Todd Bowley coming into a new sport, why wouldn't you surround yourself with people that are going to set the philosophy? It seems like he's sort of setting the philosophy without really the experience to go and do it. And I get it, right? It's your multi-billion dollar play thing and you get to make the decisions however it is you want to make them. But at the same time, It's weird to me that he's come in and it seems as though he was leaning on Thomas Tuchel to provide the expertise for which players to go and target. And then five days after the transfer window closes and he's brought in a striker that almost exclusively is there because of his previous with Thomas Tuchel gets rid of the manager. And so it seems as though Chelsea will now be building towards the philosophy of their new coach, Graham Potter. But it doesn't suggest that the many hundreds of millions of pounds that they've spent in this summer transfer window was with any kind of end goal in mind, or frankly, has really improved them that much. I don't think you look at the signings. They spent a ton of money on Wesley Fofana, Kalidou Koulibaly, and um, Marco Correa, who I don't think collectively really make Chelsea a great deal better. Make me think that they're going to compete for multiple Premier Leagues and Champions Leagues. And I know that they just won the Champions League, which is part of why this sacking is so surprising. But I don't think going into that season, a lot of people thought Chelsea are a contender. They just went along on a very good run and were deserved winners. But I think they're not really considered as one of the upper echelon favorites for either competition. And I wonder kind of where they go from here. Like you said, it's similar to the Abramovich reign, albeit Abramovich never sacked a manager this quickly. And I don't really know what their long-term plan is here other than now they're going to be Graham Potter's team. Yeah, the the whole strategy not being there is, is I think, a very good point you're making. Because if you're going to keep Tuchel, which they did for this season, I find the timing very strange uh, to dismiss him now. I actually would have understood it more if they had dismissed Thomas Tuchel over the summer. 
But also, Petr Cech, who was the head of the technical side, got sent packing by the new owners. And so was Marina Granovskaya, who was the most powerful woman in world soccer, uh, close confidant of Roman Abramovich. So not necessarily that surprising, but she had built a real reputation in the business for getting deals done and working with the technical side head. And there is no technical side head still. You know, we keep getting these different reports. You want Michael Edwards at one point, the former Liverpool guy. Um, now he's going for Luis Campos, who I thought was at PSG, but maybe he's not long-term contractually tied to PSG. Um, and it does look a little bit like just throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. And that's not a strategy. Nor, by the way, is hiring your head coach before you hire your sporting director. <laughs> that's just not the way it's supposed to work. And so, yes, there's a lot of respect here being shown for Graham Potter, who, by the way, I mean, like, I like Graham Potter a lot. And I love his story. I love that even today, you can start off as low as he did. Just go to his Wikipedia page and look at the places where he's coached. He was like in Ostersund in Sweden, which was in the fourth tier in 2011 when he took over there, led them to three promotions. But that's still sort of the wild west. You don't like people who do that don't become the Chelsea coach like Graham Potter has done. Plus, Chelsea, and you know, I know money's apparently no object, even though I thought it was supposed to be more so with the new ownership. They spent a lot of money on Graham Potter. They paid a significant transfer fee. What was it, like $24 million, Something like that? $20 million? Something like that, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, for Graham Potter, when, to be honest, the sort of obvious choice was Mauricio Pochettino, who would require no transfer fee, by the way. And so, even on its own, it's, it's one thing to say, I prefer Graham Potter over Mauricio Pochettino to coach this team of massive egos that's in Champions League. And Graham Potter hasn't dealt with massive egos in Champions League in his entire career. Not only do we prefer Potter over Pochettino, who's led his team to the Champions League final, but we're, we also prefer Potter so much that we're going to pay $20 million for him more than we would for poach that's a little crazy oh it's it's actually quite crazy when when you when you compare the resumes and i also think as well and, and this is where i i do think it's interesting the the dynamics of fandom and the dynamics of clubs because chelsea are a club that don't really have a philosophy i know that's harsh to say but they really shape shift to whoever the manager is at the time you don't look at chelsea and go this is how they win. This is how they play. They're a very pragmatic club that have just gone from manager to manager and tried to have senior characters that can adapt to a bunch of different environments, but they're not necessarily about a style. They're not Barcelona. They're not Manchester City. They're not even Bayern Munich or Borussia Dortmund or even the Red Bull clubs or whoever, where you say this is who they are, this is who they try to be, no matter who the coach is. The coaches dictate in some ways, a philosophy there. And when they've tried to bring in these sort of very uh, idealistic or ideologues kind of managers in the past, I think of Maurizio Sarri uh, being kind of the, the main recent example, the Chelsea fans don't really take to it. 
They don't really think, oh, but it's very important that we play this very pretty style of play and we had a and we have a ton of possession. No, they want to score goals and win games. That's really the, the, that's the only philosophy at Chelsea. And so I think Graham Potter's gonna take a second. And he's coming at a time we've cataloged the fixture congestion between now and the World Cup. It's a full weekend of Premier League games and Champions League basically every midweek. In some ways, the fact that he can come in and have this first weekend off. I know it comes under very difficult circumstances for the British public, but still, I imagine they're going to get some training sessions in, and that'll be really important because it's going to take a second for this style to develop, and I don't think results are going to be perfect in the intervening period. I think Chelsea could struggle a little bit to adapt to this new style of play that Potter's going to want to get into this side. So they're really committing to something big here, and I don't think they realize just how big that thing is, especially when, as you've laid out, it's a massive financial commitment to boot. Well, I'm trying to figure out exactly how much money Brighton has extracted from Chelsea this calendar year, which is an amazing <laughs> amount of money. Yeah, but, I, but I, I still worry for their succession plan, though. Like, I, I don't, I don't know what Brighton are going to do. I think they've turned to Adam Lallana, player manager, for now. But I think they're going to have to try and find someone who's similar to Graham Potter, which that's a tough one to find in terms of like generally the the types of coaches that play that way are at bigger clubs or I, I I don't know. I don't, I don't know who they turn to to find let's keep possession and have a very tactical way of using the ball against better teams, but also being rock solid defensively. Like the, the way that Brighton have specifically gone about it, I think it's going to change. And I don't know who exactly the guy that they can bring in that can sort of replicate that style would be. No, great questions. I mean, we're also an American podcast, so we should ask this question. What does this mean for Christian Pulisic? A, a great question. It's another opportunity. Um, I don't. I think when you look at Graham Potter's teams, I don't think from a system perspective they're going to change a great deal. I think Chelsea mostly have played under three four three under Tuchel or a three four two one, whatever you want to call it. And then Potter's teams have mostly played out of a three four three as well. So the one thing that for me would have given me a sort of sign of hope would be that a, a coach that would come in and essentially add a fourth attacking position because. Chelsea have mostly played with three attackers, and I think they have too many players for three attackers, and they haven't been able to figure out a specific formula. But I also think that Pulisic does sort of fit that very technical, knows exactly where to move and how to move within a system, uh, whereas I think maybe someone like Hakeem Ziyech is more of a someone who's got a bit more flair and kind of wants to play the game on his terms. So I think Pulisic can probably handle that very specific set of instructions that Potter hands out to his teams because the one thing that you can tell about Brighton is that they're very choreographed. From the from the beginning of the move to the end of the move, it's all very choreographed. All the movements are precise. And I think that's sort of Pulisic's main job here is to make sure that he fits exactly into that way of thinking. I don't think this will be worse for Pulisic, put it that way. I, I, I think it has a chance to be better for him and in general for Chelsea attackers because I don't think, and you've pointed this out, that Chelsea's attackers in the last season or so have struggled. Um, and you know, in the past, at least, you could say, well, Tuchel's Chelsea doesn't concede many goals, but that actually changed as well. Mm -hmm. So we'll see how Christian Pulisic uh, does here. But I also think, you know, when you start to get more than one coach, the coach doesn't become the problem then if, if it continues to be issues for you. And, and Christian Pulisic needs to figure some things out and just get a good run of form going, earn playing time, not get injured. He's going to have opportunities to play because there's so many games. So, you know, a lot of this is on him. 
and, and we'll see if he responds. Obviously, there's a huge motivation with the World Cup coming in two months, which is not very far away. So um, we're going to have a lot of opportunities to see how Chelsea plays and Christian Pulisic plays under Graham Potter. There's other stuff to talk about, though this week, Chris. And one of those things is Champions League just started this week with the group stage. And the biggest surprise, Liverpool losing 4-1 to one to Napoli. And this is a Napoli team that has has been okay, I guess, in, in Serie A. But, you know, we know that Liverpool has struggled relatively so far this season. But this result, more than anything, is you know, a real wake-up call, I would think. Yeah, I think that I, you're, you're underselling a bit how Napoli have done in Serie A. They're, they are top of the league, albeit you look at their recent results. They're one-goal wins mostly against teams yeah. that are towards the bottom of the table. They did beat Monza fairly significantly. They're newly promoted. They beat Verona 5-2. But to your point, it's mostly been fairly tight games against uh, mid-to-lower-table teams, but they're top of the league. That being said, I don't think anybody could have anticipated... Not, I mean you could have anticipated Napoli doing well at home in the Champions League because that is a very difficult place to go and play. It is a very intimidating atmosphere, and Napoli have some very talented players. Men, in particular up top is someone who I think is going to get a lot of buzz out of this Champions League run, but it was just the manner of the defeat and how Liverpool again and again stepped on the rake of their opponent, and it was just so weird to just watch this team sort of be toothless, and I thought... The most insightful thing that I saw in and around the coverage of the game was CBS put a graphic up of the way that Liverpool has been outrun in this season. They've been outrun in every single one of their Premier League games. They've been outsprinted in all but two of them. And that just doesn't seem like Liverpool. And I don't know if it's a bit of hangover from the Africa Cup of Nations. I know that's specifically to, to Mohamed Salah. I know that Edouard Mendy has not been nearly as good for Chelsea since coming back from that tournament. And then there was the full slate of World Cup qualifiers as well. I don't know if this is just Jurgen Klopp has sort of a life cycle. We've seen it at previous cl uh, clubs where it's usually six years and out, which is still a very long time. But it's just been so strange to watch Liverpool this season. And now as the sample size grows... These results are not a fluke. The opening day against Fulham was not a fluke. The home draw to Crystal Palace was not a fluke. This result is not a fluke. It's I think you can start to have a genuine level of concern about the level of performance from this Liverpool side. And it seems so the only solutions are going to be internal. I know that Liverpool fans have complained about how they haven't spent in the transfer window, but they spent a ton of money on a new center forward. They've Actually, the the whole reason why people give them credit is because they plan very well. They know when players are going to leave, and so they have new. They, they went and got Tiago. When you're thinking, well, maybe they don't need a central midfielder, but turns out they did, and he was very important for them last year in their run towards maybe getting a quadruple. Uh, they brought in a cover for uh, for Robertson. They brought in cover for Alexander Arnold. They've a bunch of midfielders. They brought in Luis Diaz. They brought in Diogo Jota. They started to succession plan. They've been succession planning for a long time, and this is the time of the succession. I guess the thing that's happening now is some of the players that were asked to do that job aren't necessarily the force multiplier that, for example, you think of what Sadio Mane was for Liverpool. Luis Diaz has not proven to be that just yet. He's been a good player, but he's not been the 20 goals, 10 assists kind of player just yet in terms of that raw production. So I think they had a plan for how this is going to be going forward, but I think we're just starting to see that maybe the foundations weren't as rock solid and they'll 
have to figure it out quickly because they're playing, as you mentioned, with a few teams now, a ton of games in these next few weeks. You know, there's never usually just one factor in a decline like this. And yet I do think Sadio Mane was underappreciated, maybe less so now uh, that he's gone with Bayern Munich. But this, you know, he is really missed. And um, I, I think we're finally getting an idea of just how much Darwin Nunez you know, had a three-game suspension on the red card. So he hasn't had that much of a sample size to actually play yet, but he hasn't lit it up when he has been out there. We'll give him some time. Uh, what you said about Diaz, I think, is correct. Uh, Virgil van Dijk is not the same player we've seen in previous years. This was a guy who has been viewed as the world's best central defender, I think, for a little while now, and um, and may not be that anymore. I don't think necessarily it's William Saliba yet, but uh, as we saw uh, in the last couple of weeks, but people are starting to at least ask the question. And so uh, that's worrisome, I think, if you're a Liverpool fan, because I, I really right now, it's possible they could finish in the top two in the Premier League, but I'm not feeling that great about it, um, you know, and, and I feel better about Spurs and just how they're approaching things and getting results. And they're not even getting that much out of, so it's it's a really interesting time right now as we do get more of a sample size and we definitely will in the weeks that are coming at least until the international break week so yeah very very interesting times right now for liverpool a couple other things wanted to talk about in europe uh another surprise leipzig fired its coach domenico tedesco after a loss to Shakhtar in the Champions League. So it was interesting. Two coaches fired on the same day on Wednesday who basically soured on top U.S. players. Thomas Tuchel had soured on Christian Pulisic. Domenico Tedesco had soured on Tyler Adams, causing him to move to Leeds. Um, I don't know what to make of that, except it's just interesting to point out. But Leipzig, one thing I, I do remember talking to Jesse Marsh about this, and he was very open about it when I visited him in Leeds, was that the culture of Leipzig, he didn't feel that comfortable with even when he was there the first time as an assistant starting in 2018. And definitely didn't feel comfortable when he was the head coach. And I think Leipzig is starting to try and figure out like what it is. It, it gets back to that whole identity thing. Are they a possession team? Are they a Red Bull team? They aren't. They certainly aren't a classic Red Bull team. And that's what partly led to Marsh departing. And they haven't been necessarily a winning classic Red Bull team since Ralph Rangnick was coaching them. Right, and and that's and that's the thing that's fascinating is that Julian Nagelsmann took them to a different place, but at the same time, he did change the identity of, of that team. And when you lose the manager because he's off to Bayern Munich, because really the whole Red Bull model is we have this very particular way of playing and then everyone develops and goes somewhere else. And we're cool bringing through the next group of talented players. And I remember hearing once when Red Bull, when the Red Bull organization was kind of like trying to figure out why aren't we as good as, let's say, the Red Bull Formula One team is. And Ralph Ranić came in and said, well, it's because you don't rely on youth. You're trying to buy bigger name players and you're trying to outdo other teams what they do. If you played this way, if you brought in younger talent, if you identified talent early, this is your way forward. 
and Red Bull has been incredibly successful at that. But the question is, what happens when you reach the Champions League group stage every year? What happens when you're trying to compete with Bayern Munich? And I wonder if the Red Bull style of play, which is, we can all pick it out, right? 4-2-2-2 formation, pressing forwards, recover the ball, score within five seconds of the transition, hit through balls, play direct, play with energy, outrun your teams. We, we We all know what that is. But is that formula successful enough to win a league title, to challenge for a Champions League? Probably not, I think, is what these last 10 years have taught us. And so Red Bull are now at a stage where, all right, so if that's not successful enough, what do we do? Nagelsmann came in and came pretty close. They were competitive into the latter stages of a Bundesliga season. They competed well in the Champions League. But now that Nagelsmann isn't quite that force of personality, Jesse Marsh tried to go back to the old way. Domenico Tedesco tried to split the difference. And now, what are they as a club? And I think that's the really interesting thing going forward. It's a weird league right now in Germany because everyone made a big deal. Like 30 minutes into the first game of the season, Bayern's way up on Eintracht Frankfurt. And let's hand the title to Bayern. They're Guilty not leading the league right now. It's, it's, it's actually pretty crazy. And guess who is leading the Bundesliga? Union Berlin, whose best player may be an American, Jordan Peefock, who may not go to the World Cup. <laughs> it's kind of wild. Yeah, Union Berlin. It's actually kind of wild that nobody sort of realized that this tiny club, which I believe was promoted into the Bundesliga three years ago, I want to say. Um, Recent, yes. Yeah, like they, well, they're already in Europe. I think they're in the Europa League. And yeah. they, because they finished in the top five last year in the Bundesliga and they've only kicked on from there. In some ways, they're kind of a, a very low key story. I remember watching some of their games during the COVID period when uh, all the stadiums were empty and they had like this, this supporters, like basically three of the sides of the ground are you stand. There's no, there's no place to sit other than this one side of the stadium and this very particular fan culture. And I remember kind of learning a bit about their story, but I don't feel like. Union Berlin have quite caught on as this, you know, Cinderella story in the way that other clubs have in the past. Like I remember way more about like the Monaco team that made it to the semifinal of the Champions League. I know some of that stuff happens in the Champions League and Union Union Berlin haven't quite been there, but I'm so surprised that this story hasn't quite taken off as much because like we've outlined in the last 18 months, it's an incredible turnaround from a team newly promoted to top of the Bundesliga after six rounds. I might have to get over there and tell that story, especially because there is a U.S. component with PFOC, even though mm-hmm. I'm hearing he's not totally comfortable doing interviews in English. So I'll, I'll try and learn more, a little more about that. Um, but just an amazing story. And if they can keep it going, uh, that would just be phenomenal. So uh, I'll be heading over to Germany, actually, for the U.S. game against Japan coming up in Dusseldorf. Um, interesting location for a U.S. Japan game, but I guess that's what we're dealing with with the uh, the international window. Should be a good opponent, and I think the U.S. is going to be training in Cologne, which is a cool city I've never been to before. So, very excited about that. Um, that is a good way, I, I think, into Yanks abroad, Yanks in Europe discussion. And when you look around right now. Who's standing out to you? Well, I, I think Ricardo Pepe uh, getting an assist this weekend for Groningen. It's just good to see him with a box score number for the first time in a while. This is his first appearance in Holland. And you just want to see him in some ways get 
the Netherlands bump, which a lot of American players have enjoyed in the past in terms of uh, Josie Altador went to, went to the Netherlands and scored a bunch of goals. You just want to see a U.S. player go over there and, and have a chance to score goals and get assists and enjoy his football again. But clock is ticking. It's September the 11th now. We have an international window coming up. What is is there amount of production that Pepe can have here where he's back in contention for the World Cup? Because we know he has familiarity with the system. He scored goals in the system almost more than anybody else currently in the U.S. setup. Um, but he certainly caught my attention. Ferreira scored again at the weekend for Dallas, uh, which was uh, a, a very uh, heady play from Paul Arriola. It was a short free kick that took advantage of LAFC napping. But yeah, I think Pepe continues to be an interesting story to me because he sort of went from incredible hype train to sort of out of the consciousness and record speed. And I hope that he doesn't exactly completely fall off the radar because he's still only 19 and he still has a massive amount of career left. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. And I think we can say that even if he doesn't make the World Cup team, I don't think he's out of the picture yet, but he does need to get things going over there. And, and this weekend was a good start. Come on as a sub, get an assist on the game-winning goal. We'll see if he gets more playing time moving forward. Um, midweek, Weston McKenney scored for Juventus against PSG in Champions League. So that was a reminder, by the way, that McKenney as a header on set pieces or in the box he is great. And yeah. he's actually scored quite a few goals that way for the U.S., including against Mexico uh, over time. But if you can get Weston McKenney going, I think that's uh, a potential real benefit for the U.S. He did start for Juventus in a wild game. They ended up dropping points at home, finishing 2-2 on Sunday against Salernitana. So that's not great for Juventus, but all sorts of craziness happened in added time. Missed... Juventus penalty, then they thought they'd scored the game winner after being down 2-0. Milik celebrates, gets a second yellow, gets sent off. Gold gets disallowed, most importantly, and Juve ends up with a 2-2 tie in disappointment. I still think, by the way, that if you get a yellow card celebrating a goal that is then disallowed, you should not have to get the yellow card. <laughs> uh, I, I suppose that the offense is the offense, regardless of the context. I, I, For me, it seems unbelievably harsh and inhuman. It's one of those areas in which the laws of the game uh, are sort of um, arcane in that way, where it's just like, well, why can't we just apply the context? It was a goal celebration. The goal didn't count. Let's just be human beings and have this not count. This has happened, I think, in several leagues. And I think it happened in England recently where someone got a yellow card uh, and, and, a, and a sending off for a goal that eventually didn't count. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, unfortunately, referees are just going to be that way. I do want to continue on that point, though, about Weston McKinney on set pieces. Feels like a really big one for the World Cup. If you can get him going on set pieces, that could be a huge factor during the tournament because how many times does Alexi Lalas come on in postgame and just go set pieces, set pieces, set pieces? It's a huge part of the game, particularly at the international level. And it's just going to be an absolutely massive factor for the U.S. because you never know where a goal is going to come from. And if McKenney can rise over a well center back to go get a goal against a very tight defense, that's a huge card to be able to play. Yeah, that might also be the only area in which Alexi Lalas and soccer data heads actually agree that set pieces are a big deal. <laughs> because yeah. I don't know if I've heard Alexi talk about <laughs> data at any other point. Um, but 
yeah, I think you're right there. And, and you know, you, you look at, at other U.S. players. We talked about Pulisic, uh, Tyler Adams, Brandon Aronson didn't play, obviously, this weekend for Leeds. Um, Matt Turner finally made his debut midweek for Arsenal in the Europa League. And he's at least going to get cup games, it sounds like. So with six weeks out of nine having European games, Matt Turner should get a fair number of a bit of action, I think, over the coming weeks. And Zach Steffen, who is still hurt as far as I can tell, hasn't played since August 20th. And I do wonder at what point that becomes a concern for Qatar. Obviously, we aren't at the September window yet, but that's something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think a lot of people thought that Matt Turner was going to go to Arsenal and simply not play. And I think we probably should have considered the Europa League more in terms of that discussion because a lot of teams choose to have European keepers. Even in the Champions League, sometimes clubs have gone for European keepers. And I think in this instance where Arsenal has started very well in the Premier League and will want to use that route to get to the Champions League and still probably be good enough to rotate a fair bit during the Europa League games to still qualify for the next round, Turner's going to play. And he honestly, it might be a situation where he plays through to finals. Um, and or if, if Arsenal get that far. And I imagine we'll see him in the Carabao Cup. I imagine we'll see him in the FA Cup as well. I think we're going to see Matt Turner play 10 to 15 games maybe for Arsenal. And that doesn't seem like a lot, but it's something. And I think with as tight as the fixture congestion is going to be before the World Cup, it's enough to put him in, con- in, in contention. And if Turner is demonstrating the qualities that Greg Berhalter wants out of a keeper in terms of distribution, and his shot-stopping remains as good. He conceded the one goal, but it was from a penalty. Um, But if his shot-stopping remains good, then that gives him the platform that he would need in order to to contend for this position. I still think if Zach Steffen is healthy and Matt Turner is healthy and they're playing as often as we are expecting them to play for their clubs— that knowing Greg Berhalter, I think he still picks Stefan, even though, by the way, even when Stefan mm-hmm. was playing for Middlesbrough, had some bad moments. So I think it's going to be a really intriguing one, but I also don't think there's a really serious chance that we're going to see someone other than those two starting in goal for the U.S. Not, you know, they, they started every World Cup qualifier, those two guys. I just have a hard time seeing Berhalter going with anyone else. Um, but going to be an interesting one to follow. Um, Let's move over to this side of the pond and the U.S. Open Cup final, which was midweek. Orlando City wins its first ever trophy in a convincing 3-0 win over Sacramento Republic, which had been the first non-MLS team to make the U.S. Open Cup final um, since, what was it, 08? Um, They could have been Mm -hmm. the first to win it since 99. And that didn't end up happening, but this game was still pretty tight for quite a while. Yeah, it was more than 70 minutes still scoreless. And I actually thought it was funny. I, I, I Classic jinx for me. I said to a couple of friends, I think Sacramento can do this like right around the 68th minute. And like six minutes later, the floodgates open and Orlando started scoring a bunch of goals. But Sacramento did exactly what you'd want out of a lower division team going against a higher division team. Completely kept the crowd out of it. There were not very many chances for Orlando. Frustrated a lot of their top talents. Created a little bit here and there. I thought if you asked me after 70 minutes who's going to win the game, I would have guessed Sacramento based off oh, wow. of how they were performing. I thought that they were they did exactly what you'd want 
as the lower level opposition going into a game like that. And fair play. They, they gave it a real go. They gave a really good account to themselves. They kind of tuned out all the all the noise about the Spygate stuff that happened before the game, which is really funny. That was a funny 48 hours on Twitter, um, but it really hasn't turned into much. And you can tell it didn't really determine much in the game. But Orlando, that's a huge landmark achievement for them. To, to be able to win a, a trophy for a club that struggled at times during its life in Major League Soccer, that it's still kind of searching for identity, that still wants to be able to capture that city, that's one of the best atmospheres in American soccer. We've seen that for the U.S., and now we're seeing it uh, in these major games for Orlando. And we've seen it in the playoffs. We see it now in this cup final. This is a really huge moment for Orlando City to be able to win a trophy and kind of really establish themselves in MLS and prove themselves as legitimate to their fans. Because at times, they've been rock bottom of the Eastern Conference. And I imagine there might be some people who have kind of left being an Orlando City fan by, and all of a sudden they're capturing the town because they're winning trophies. I really hope this leads to better attendance for their games and perhaps a more serious run towards uh, contention in the MLS Cup playoffs. Benji Michelle really made an impact in that final coming on. Uh, The game really changed after that. Now, over the weekend... Orlando City was run out of the stadium by the Philadelphia Union. And that brings us to our next point of discussion. The Philadelphia Union are now in the driver's seat to win the Supporters' Shield, three points ahead of LAFC. Now, granted, they haven't played the same competition. They're in different conferences, obviously. But you look at what Philadelphia is doing, and we're getting late in the MLS regular season here. You know, there's three or four games left for most teams. And then you have the playoff start, and obviously anything can happen in single elimination MLS playoffs. But I am struck by the goal difference for the Philadelphia Union, which is now at a crazy number, plus 46 for the season. And when you compare that to LAFC, which is plus 26, it's not even close. And so I do think when people say, Who's the best team in MLS this season? I actually think it's a pretty easy argument to make at this point in, say, Philadelphia. It's certainly a good argument with how poor LAFC have been in recent times. Uh, They really hit their stride during the summer. They brought in Bale, they brought in Chiellini, and they still kept on going. But now, I think they've reached a critical mass of bringing in too many players and changing too much up before the end of the season. They've lost four of their last five, which has come at a really surprising time. And Philadelphia is doing the exact opposite. And I think the one argument you can make to say, well, Philadelphia might not be who we think they are, is they've beefed up on a pretty poor run of opponents. If you look at the way that the games have played out, they've hammered DC United twice, who are rock bottom of the Eastern Conference. They hammered Houston. Uh, They hammered uh, Atlanta United, who have been really up and down this season. They, They beat Chicago by four goals to one. Uh, their games against reasonable opposition have been more normal. They lost to the Red Bulls, or I'm sorry, they beat the Red Bulls 2-0. They lost to Dallas 1-0. They lost to Cincinnati 3-1. So I guess their games against decent opposition have not been as lopsided, but LAFC have not been doing that. To their, I mean, demoralizing for LAFC was 3-0. Philadelphia demoralizing is 6-0. And the amazing thing is, is that they basically do it by running out the same 11 every game. They know exactly who they are. 
They know exactly who their key contributors are. Daniel Goslog has taken a huge step forward and I think is probably going to be the next big sale uh, towards Europe. Hell, honestly, any of their attackers can be the next big sale towards Europe. When you look at Carranza, who's still super young, coming from Inter Miami, they didn't get him for much, and maybe they can sell up to Europe. They can sell him to Europe for a decent fee. Uh, Mikel Uda is a player that they brought in from Europe, but he's scoring a ton of goals and looking good. Maybe he's heading back not before long, and it's just remarkable the formula Jim Curtin has found from this team. Kai Wagner is a left back, and he's got 13 assists this season. They just, their goalkeeper is probably going to win goalkeeper of the year. They're probably going to represent four or five of the best 11 from Major League Soccer this season. It is insane what they've done this season. And you have to give a huge amount of credit to that organization. But we're heading towards single elimination playoffs. And you just never know. You never know if maybe Philadelphia were beefing up on bad opposition or they're actually this much better than everybody else. And the way the MLS playoffs are set up, the number one seed waits a long time to play. And as we saw last year, and actually in previous years, the number one seed, I think, is punished in many ways by that. And so that's that's a, an interesting one there. I, I think that it's, it it's shorter. Tough. It's shorter, though, now this year because the break between the regular season and the playoffs is not broken up by an international break. So it's not like two weeks plus a bye. It's like you wait nine days as opposed to you wait 21. Or I think New England's last year was like 24 or something like that. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, so I want to finish by talking about the NWSL. We're checking in there too toward the end of the regular season. And kind of a, a crazy game between the Washington Spirit, which has been terrible this season. Uh, the defending champion just fell off a cliff. And San Diego, which entered the game in first place. And Washington gets its first win in forever. Four to three on... A 100th minute penalty from Ashley Hatch after San Diego had done a lot of work to get back in the game and looked like they were at least going to get a point out of it. And Washington ends up taking the points. It had been, you say forever, it had been since the <laughs> opening day of the season. They went 16 games without a win. There was 10 draws and six losses in that period for Washington Spirit. And then anytime you look at a box score and it's and there's a 90 plus 10 in there, I'm all the way in. I'm here for it. So that, that is a huge moment for Washington. It, in some ways, even though they won the, the, the league last year, it was still in the middle of a very tumultuous period uh, the, with all the issues with ownership with what ended up becoming another issue in terms of coaching, uh, which is played out in the press. I saw the, the fired manager did an interview with The Athletic, and then the players responded with their voice. Uh, that, that was certainly chaotic, but I, I do think that Washington desperately needed a win here, and they get it. And I think now, hopefully, it seems like every club is going through a cycle of they're going to have to figure out what their culture is after having an issue with their head coach, literally every team in right. the league. And hopefully Washington, under new ownership, with an organization there that's ready to support the players, that's ready to put a good structure in place, is going to kick on to have a good season next year. Because they have players that can... And Ashley Hatch was a top goal scorer last year. They have Trinity Rodman. They have players that can be towards the top of the NWSL. It's just been a really strange season for them. It has. I mean, and, and strange for other teams that have done poorly. Gotham's been terrible this season, and they've got a lot of good players on that mm -hmm. team. So um, when you look at this stretch run for the NWSL, and I know you're going to be calling a couple of NWSL games uh, coming up soon here, 
We're seeing some teams like the expansion teams, especially San Diego right near the top of the league. Angel City is drawing great crowds, but they are really fighting to try and get into the playoffs, may or may not make it on the outside looking in right now. Kansas City has gone on a huge run to put themselves near the top of the league. There's not a lot of points separating teams up there, but I'm looking forward to the playoffs. As am I, but before then, I am very much looking forward to San Diego Wave, Angel City, September the 17th. Circle, it's, a, it's a late one. It's a 10 o'clock kickoff, but uh, the San Diego Wave will be playing their first game in their new home stadium, which is on the campus of San, Di- of, uh, San Diego State. And it seems like a brand new, nice stadium. Seems like one, frankly, that could host MLS. Uh, but San Diego are attempting to sell that place out. I think it's capacity 30,000. And if you live in the San Diego area and you're listening to this podcast, buy a ticket for that game. That seems like it'll be a really cool atmosphere. It'll be a really cool night out. And I think the two California teams that have come into Major League Soccer or into the NWSL this year have brought so much to the league from a fan support standpoint. Even in their their old stadium, they're selling games out. They had good atmosphere there. Angel City obviously have been a revelation in this league. The California teams have brought a lot, and that's not easy to do because particularly in Los Angeles, there's a very crowded sports market that you're trying to find an audience through, and they've done a brilliant job of doing that. And San Diego, the same. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what that crowd looks like, and hopefully they deliver a very entertaining product, and that rivalry continues to grow, and it could perhaps become one of the best ones in NWSL in years to come. I'm glad that game's kicking off at 7 p.m. Pacific because the one drawback on this new stadium in San Diego is there's no roof whatsoever, and it looks just hot as anything if you're going to go to a game there during the the day. In San Diego? Um, Yeah. San Diego's Diego's never that hot. That's that's the joy of living there. It was hot recently, man. Like, global warming's happening. Yeah, yeah, there, there, there was the heat wave, but the heat wave excluded the San Diego is the loveliest place in the world. It's like 80 degrees every day there and like 68 at night. San Diego fans will be fine. I appreciate <laughs> your meteorology here, Chris, but <laughs> I, I, I would say that uh, I, I hope they consider putting a, a roof or at least a partial roof over that stadium, especially if they want to have an MLS team, but they're going to have an NWSL team. Uh, I do like San Diego. I visited there for the first time in a while earlier this year. Landon Donovan lives there. Seems to like it. Um, so not casting aspersions on San Diego. By the way, I once visited Bill Walton, who lives in San Diego, and I spent some time in his 14-foot-high teepee that he has in his backyard. That's a great anecdote. Um, what, is, is there anything more to that story? What did you, you guys talk about? Actually- <laughs> did, you, did, did, did you ask one question and you talk for 40 minutes? Because that's how Bill Walton interviews go. Bill Walton is the best. I I did a story (laughs) when I was still covering college basketball, and he had three sons who were playing in college basketball at the same time at that point. So we went to see games. I went with Bill Walton to see all three play. We went to a, a UCLA versus Arizona game to see his son, Luke. He's also, Bill's also a big UCLA guy, obviously. Uh, we sat next to John Lithgow, the actor, which was kind of random. Um, and then we went to see his son, Christopher Tuffy, play for San Diego State. And then we went to see uh, his son, Nate, play for Princeton against Columbia in New York. It was a fairly travel-heavy magazine story, but I got to, to know Bill a little bit. And it was the coolest thing because um, 
I still get Christmas cards. We still exchange Christmas cards wow. with Bill Walton and his and his wife Lori. Um, and there's not too many people I've written about over the years that you got that tight with. Um, and then one year after, I think the the story I did, um, the NCAA tournament was in San Diego, and Bill was doing game calls and invited a bunch of us over to his house one night. And Dick Enberg was there, former, he had called UCLA games, basketball games back when Bill played. And he was still working, by the way, at the time, because Bill or Dick Enberg was ageless, basically. <laughs> and we spent time having, we had, there was a, Bill had hired a concert pianist to come and play a, a mini little piano concert inside the house, which was heavily decorated with Grateful Dead memorabilia, because he was a big, <laughs> you know, Bill is a big Grateful Dead guy. Yeah. And then we went out to the 14-foot high teepee in the backyard and hung out a little bit. I got the sense that Bill maybe smokes the peace pipe out there a little bit. Um, mm. uh, you don't which, say. Which, more power to him, by the way. What did you guys talk about in the teepee? Um, I just sort of chilled for the most part, as I recall, because um, mm. it was a good group out there and, and um, just a bunch of like interesting random people who got invited to this thing. And so I've got good <laughs> memories of it, but it's a fun story. It is. I mean, any story that involves hanging out with John, with Bill Walton and his TP, great anecdote. I would tell that one at dinner parties. The the other one was that we, he, they had a basketball court and I played with like two on two or three on three and took a shower afterward. And Bill Walton's shower head is like 10 feet off the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Very much. I, I think they call those rain showers. That one must feel like actual rain. <laughs> oh, shoot. Those were good times. I missed that. Um, so thanks for getting us on this uh, San Diego thing and apologies to listeners for <laughs> taking you on a long, strange Bill Walton trip. <laughs> I hope people who like are only soccer fans that don't know who Bill Walton is, like have to go to Google now and or to YouTube and watch uh, Bill Walton clips. Oh my God. Anyway, thank you very much, Chris. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. <laughs>